Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Gotti Kaufman, a Managing Director and CEO of RCLCO, Real Estate Advisors. If you're listening to the podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been a first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm honored to be talking to Bobby Turner, CEO of Turner Impact Capital, one of the nation's largest social impact investment firms. Over the past 25 years, Bobby has established himself as one of the most prominent private equity real estate investors, as well as a pioneer in the area of social impact investing. He has launched several groundbreaking funds facilitating more than $6 billion in real estate investment that helped define the social impact investment movement particularly for real estate. His investment platforms have included partnerships with celebrities like Magic Johnson, Andre Agassi, Eva Longoria, and Chris Paul, all focusing on development of affordable workforce housing, charter school facilities, and community-serving healthcare centers, to name a few. Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of our podcast series, and welcome. It's great to be here this morning, Gotti. Thanks for having great. me. Great to have you here. We've known one another for a number of years, and we've interacted in many different areas, but there are some things I want to talk to you about which have never come up before. Some did, maybe many have not. So maybe for the benefit of the audience, Bobby, you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, the Believe City, and I was the product of two very driven parents. One was a very driven capitalist, my father, who ran a fledgling athletic shoe company in the 70s and all the way through the 80s and 90s where he truly defined himself singularly by how much money he could make in his life and how big of a business he could build. On the other side, balancing that was an incredibly driven mother who was a philanthropist as well as an educator who taught in the Baltimore City Public Schools where she focused on children with learning disabilities. So I grew up in a very balanced household. The politics were not always on the same page. The dinner conversations were exciting. I went to Baltimore Public Schools myself and then went on and graduated and went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where I eventually honed my skills as a black belt in how to create wealth. <laughs> That's terrific. Now, at some point, something happened that you realized that you have a destiny to do social impact investing and to change the world. What happened? When did that happen? Well, I think I was always exposed to the goals or the metrics of success, both as profit-driven from my father and purpose-driven from my mother. And I got great experiences from both. My mother would take me into her classrooms. I was a guitarist growing up, and she would take me into her classrooms to play for her students, many of them who had high degrees of autism and many with Down syndrome. So that gave me a sense of responsibility, a sense of appreciation for how lucky I was. At the same time, my father had shoe factories down in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico, where he would send me repeatedly down to learn. The first summer he sent me down, and I was somewhat surprised to look at the workforce environment in which my father's employees worked, which was candidly subhuman. I was working on an assembly line, building shoes, and I met and became good friends with two young men who were working on either side of the machine that I was working on. 
At the end of the summer, I went back to Baltimore, Maryland, saw my father, and he asked me what had I learned. I answered very obviously, well, I learned how to make shoes. To which he responded, you didn't learn anything. You're going to go back. You're going back. <laughs> so the next summer I went back, and to my great surprise, the two gentlemen who had been on either side of me the prior summer were still there. And when I asked them, what are you guys still doing here? They responded, what are our choices? What options do we have? So when I went back at the end of that summer, my father asked me once again, what did I learn? And I had a very different answer this time. And what I have learned is how lucky I was to have the opportunities to choose my destiny in life. Right. So you got a black belt in making money at Wharton. How did that actually evolve coming out of school? What was the path you followed to get to Turner Impact Investment? So I then went to work on Wall Street to pursue my singular dimension of how to create wealth because I always assumed that with wealth would come a corresponding sense of happiness. Mm -hmm. I'm here 30 plus years later to tell you that for me and probably for most, there's a very little correlation between wealth and happiness. And the fact mm -hmm. is, is the only thing that wealth can guarantee is a more comfortable form of misery. Now, I always say if you're going to be miserable, you might as well be comfortable. But for me, I found myself as a capitalist, I was almost struggling at some point in the sense that I was going to work every day. And the sole metric of my success was just financial. I was surrounded by people whose sole metric of success was just financial. And in that case, I began to really question you know, what I was doing with my career. My accomplishments were not necessarily aligned with my values. So I went on a journey. And I went on a journey, what I called my 50 over 50. And I interviewed 50 people over the age of 50. And I asked them a very simple question. What age were you at that time? I was about 35. Okay. And it was on the advice of a very good friend over the age of 50. He had done the same journey 15, 20 years earlier. And I interviewed people that came from all walks of life. I interviewed uh, bankers and lawyers and agents and accountants and doctors and teachers and policemen, rich people, poor people. I even interviewed some lawyers, but they were somewhat self-loathing and always charged me for the time. And what I concluded that for me, success would be defined in a four-step program. That I recognize that number one, for me to be happy, I had to have some base level of materialism. That living in survival mode is no way to ever be happy. And the vast majority of people living in survival mode never have the opportunity to dream because it's very difficult to dream when you're living paycheck to paycheck. So I recognized that it wasn't bad to want some wealth, but too much wealth was not going to drive happiness. Number two was love. Now, most people would say, well, love's the most important thing in life. That will drive your happiness. But if you're an ambitious person, like most of us in the business world are, we realize that we spend 80% of our waking hours away from the people we love. So we can't rely upon love. Number three for me was the opportunity to achieve. Not achievement itself, but the opportunity to get up every morning and fight a battle that I cared about. And fourth, which almost might seem somewhat contradictory, is for me to be happy, I had to have power. And not the power to manipulate or the power to control, but the power to have a positive impact on other people's lives. I saw my mother so happy having that impact, even though she was frustrated with public education. But for me to be happy, I had to have the power to have a positive impact on other people's lives because the happiest people I met were the teachers, were the policemen, were the firemen. And with that, I realized that I needed to get a sense of balance. Bobby, this came out of talking to 50 over 50? Yeah. How long a process was that? It was about six months. Yeah. Fabulous. I'm still very close. A lot was just word of mouth. If I spoke to one person, they say, well, this is an incredible journey you're on. Let me suggest you speak to that person. Some of it was self-serving and some of it was just self-enlightening. And I realized that for me, I needed to get a balance in my life. I was in a career. I was very successful. Uh, Canyon was growing by leaps and bounds. And yet I was still unhappy. 
So I guess in an effort to get a sense of balance, I began moonlighting as a philanthropist. And I struggled there too. And it wasn't with the discomfort that came from being in an environment where the sole metric of success was making money, but it came from being in an environment where I found that money was really being used as a band-aid. The vast majority of philanthropy that my wife and I were funding really was reactive, not proactive. It was treating issues. The organizations weren't scalable. They weren't candidly being held accountable for a measurable impact. And in many instances, we were just funding legacies of dependency. So about 36, I came to the conclusion that if you wanted to treat a problem in society, then the government and philanthropy are just fine. But years and years of anecdotal evidence today now shows us that a reliance upon the government or philanthropy to address critical, daunting social challenges like education, housing, healthcare, and income disparity have actually led to handicap our outcomes. And I concluded that if you wanted to cure, really cure, you had to harness market forces to create durable, scalable, sustainable, and yes, profitable solutions. And that's when I evolved towards my destiny, recognizing that for me to do good and do well, I did not need to segregate profits and purpose. And in fact, there is an interdependency between profits and purpose that actually can drive two things, great risk-adjusted returns for investors and great societal change for those who suffer the injustices of social determination. So you're coming to this realization while being a partner in an investment firm. Yeah. And you can do certain things as a partner, but you can only do so much on your own. You have to get others to agree and to support that. I suspect your discovery was a substantial departure from what the firm was doing, how the firm believed or was acting. Is that fair? Surprisingly enough, my partners were very supportive. They were supportive as long as what I was pursuing did not come at a sacrifice and yield. So they were very believers that if the business model could generate market rate returns, which could help us grow our business, they would be supported. So it was an enlightened view that said, if you can do the impact and make money, go for it. Absolutely. And how did it work out? It worked out brilliantly in the sense that our first partnership was with Irvin Magic Johnson back in 1998. I remember being at a Lakers game with Magic and he asking me what I was working on. So I told him that I was working on an urban fund to which over the din of the crowd, he thought I had said Irvin Fund. And so he, you signed up. he was so excited. He was so honored. He couldn't believe that someone wanted to do a fund named after him. After he realized that it was an urban fund, we laughed about whether or not it would be called the Irvin Urban Fund or the Urban Irvin Fund. That was the exciting part. I was able to impress upon Urban that the opportunity set to invest in densely populated, ethnically diverse communities was good business. These marketplaces were defined or characterized by huge mismatches between supply and demand of community-enriching infrastructure, a lack or a scarcity of capital because the vast majority of institutional capital candidly was avoiding because of the misperception or perception of higher risks. At Canyon, we had a wonderful track record, and he was Magic Johnson. Who wouldn't want to invest with us? And I remember in 1999, we made a bet. He asked me how long I thought it would take to raise the fund. I bet him it would take six months based on all the compelling fundamentals that I just discussed. He bet me it would take two years because he believed that institutional capital wasn't ready and open to investing in minority communities, that he believed that there was still tremendous racism and bigotry embedded into the institutional markets. Had you bet on both of us, you would have been right because it took us two years and six months to raise the fund. Uh, yet we it's went like on building like custom home, right? To get three bids, you add them up. That's your budget. Exactly. So we went on to raise that first fund. It was very successful. We raised about two hundred and sixty million dollars. We made thirteen investments. We delivered excellent market returns for investors, which enabled us to raise a second fund. 
The second fund did not take us two and a half years. It took us two and a half months, and we raised $600 million. We then went on to raise a third fund, which was $1 billion. It took us about two and a half phone calls. And that's when a billion dollars meant a lot of money. That's when a billion dollars meant a lot of money. But the reality was... So this is 99 to to a billion is what? Three years, five years? Oh, no. Well, in 99, we raised our... Actually, the first fund was in right. 2001. Oh, 2000. Okay. The third fund, we raised it in 2008. Mm-hmm. So, a billion-dollar fund. A billion-dollar fund. But we now were able to prove to the institutional investment world that investing in social injustice, investing in minority communities, people of color and immigrants, wasn't and isn't and would not come at a sacrifice in yield. And in fact, if you did it correctly, you could actually drive better risk-adjusted returns because you weren't speculating. The vast majority of investors are speculators. When you're investing in social injustice, you're not speculating on demand. You're investing in marketplaces where there's a huge demand that is going unmet, where there's a lack of competition, and where it requires unique skill sets. Yeah, the bet is on the ability to execute and accomplish the returns, not whether there's a market needs those services or those Correct. Services. And that was the opportunity that we recognized, and that's how we built a firm around being able to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risk associated with social injustice. So I know a little bit about what that business was like, but maybe for the audience, you can talk a bit more about what was the social impact that you were trying to accomplish and how were you going about accomplishing the social impact well, in the early days? That, so in the early days, the our job, first and foremost, is to recognize is that we had two objectives. First and foremost, and the primary one, was making money. The second was making... That's why it only took three phone calls to raise a billion dollars. Exactly, because we had proven we had made money. But the first fund we raised was very, very difficult because we were met with great skepticism. The vast majority of investors said, hey, if you're going to superimpose a social agenda on a financial model, you will sacrifice yield. Magic was absolutely adamant that that wasn't the case, that he, in fact, had a track record of profitable endeavors in the marketplaces with his Magic Johnson Theaters, his Magic Johnson Starbucks, his TGI Fridays. And what he brought to the equation was a thorough understanding of the nuances and the unique skills and understandings that you had to have in place to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risks. Mm -hmm. So again, it was a battle, but we were able to prove over those first four or five years that have done intelligently and done wisely, one could drive incredibly strong risk-adjusted returns. And I say risk-adjusted because I'm always a believer that if you identify, quantify, and mitigate risks correctly, when you reduce risk, you reduce yield. But that's okay to reduce yield because, again, when you're thinking about trying to create alpha, what you want to do is have risk-adjusted yields. And when we look at... The certainty of results, you should accept low returns. Absolutely. And what we were certain about... is that our returns would be strong because the demand would be strong regardless of the economic cycle and regardless of where the broader market indices were going. So that's the economic side. What about the impact side? The economic side were things that gave me great satisfaction, like the generation and creation of over 10,000 permanent jobs, the manufacturing of or preservation of tens of thousands of multifamily units that were preserved and deemed affordable for working families. Things like providing much needed services and amenities in communities that were deprived and neglected of community serving retail like grocery stores or even like Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Things like the ability to generate incremental tax revenues in the form of sales taxes, wage taxes, real estate taxes that historically hadn't been generated. And those revenues then could then be reinvested in the form of social services in the communities. So we were investing in hope. 
And by building this sense of community, we were building a pride in rentership, a pride in patronage, and a pride of committing to and supporting our investments in the communities. Then you pivoted, transitioned, evolved to the version 2.0. What does that look like? Well, version 2.0 is as much as I was accomplishing within the criteria framework of a $25 billion alternative asset manager. There were so many challenges and the challenges were so daunting. I was probably spending 60% of my time doing traditional real estate investing. We had high yield debt funds. We had allocated funds where we were just allocating capital to developers that were doing, again, any kind of investing. And 40% of my time was being spent on doing what I would call the social impact investing. You were getting 100% of your satisfaction out of 40% of your That's exactly right. And my daughter had come home from school one day and asked me, Dad, what do I want my epitaph to read? which I responded to her, sweetheart, daddy went to the Wharton School. I have no idea what the word epitaph means. So do help me, please. And when she explained to me that the word epitaph meant, what did I want my gravestone to read, my tombstone to read? I said to her with great humility, said, you know, when I was 21 years old and I graduated the Wharton School, I knew very clearly what I wanted my epitaph to read. Daddy had the most change in his pocket. I wanted to be rich. But with 30 plus years of experience of successes, of loss, of failures, of profits, of whatever it might be, experience of becoming wise, I realized that, you know, at the end of the day, the most important things in life aren't things. It's people and the impact you've had on people and the impact that people have had on you. And now when I was 50, I no longer wanted my epitaph to read daddy had the most change in his pocket, but rather daddy made the most change in the world. And my daughter, with all of her intelligence looked at me, she goes, well, then I'm confused. You've always told me that it's easy for most people to dream while they're asleep, but it's those that have the courage to dream while they're awake that will change the world. Why are you not practicing what you preach? And with that, I made the decision to depart from being one of the titans of industry, from being a partner in one of the world's largest hedge funds, to start a company, Turner Impact Capital, whose sole mission was is to harness market forces to create sustainable, durable solutions to tackle some of our most daunting challenges. That was literally five and a half years ago. Today, we've grown from one employee, me. Today, we are 238 employees across the country. We are 90% diverse in our makeup, meaning non-white men. We are 50% women in our makeup, meaning, I guess, non-men. And where we lack diversity is in our unwavering fanaticism to use business as a force for good. We've managed to raise nearly $1.5 billion of private equity capital, which will enable us and empower us to do nearly $3 billion worth of community enriching infrastructure. We have come across and have an amazing group of investors that come in two categories. We have what I would call the evolved capitalists, which I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. The evolved capitalist is a capital who is enlightened enough or involved to recognize that doing good and doing well needn't be exclusive. That making purpose and making profits can drive great risk-adjusted returns. So I would say about 60% of our investors are those. Now, by the way, all they care about, however, is us making money for them. They don't typically ask the question, how do the social metrics look like? They just want to know how well we've done financially and that we're driving great returns so they can do whatever they want to do with those returns. These are mostly institutions? or These are institutions. institutions. These are university endowments. These are insurance companies. These are pension funds. Mm -hmm. These are sovereign wealth funds. So many of them have their own agendas. University endowment might say, we want you to drive great returns so that we can be social responsible. The more money that Turner Impact makes for the university endowment, the more scholarships that we can give, the more tenure we can offer. So how much of 
weight of the scale is the social impact aspect versus the money making. For them, one hundred percent is on the financial scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, the does other, it give them comfort that you're doing good yeah, stuff? Of course it does. Right. Of course it does. Any time where <clears throat> your accomplishments can also be consistent with your values, I like to say that one of the great things about impact investing is that the financial returns are less correlated with the market indices, but more correlated with my values as a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think that most of the people I with like whom that. I've chosen to do business with, mm-hmm. they're good people. While they might be tough, might, they might recognize their fiduciary duty to obviously generate wealth first and foremost, there's nothing more rewarding, there's nothing more priceless than going to a ribbon cutting at a brand new public charter school in the Bronx where you have changed the opportunity set for 500 kids who would have been relegated to a public school district where the likelihood of them graduating high school is below 20%. And graduating from this school, it's more than 75% going on to college. That is incredibly rewarding. If that doesn't tickle your soul, then you shouldn't be my investor. Right. So that's 60%. The other 40% are what I would call the enlightened philanthropist, which I am also one of. So I can talk both stories. The enlightened philanthropists are folks who have spent years and years, if not decades or centuries, plowing money into organizations that candidly have just been treating or putting band-aids on issues. Funding organizations that haven't been held accountable, that in many instances have just funded legacies of dependency. And in many instances, folks like myself and other philanthropists have concluded, if and when there is a market-driven solution that addresses or tackles the exact same issues we care about as a philanthropist, why in the world would we not harness those market forces to create durable, scalable, and yes, profitable solutions. So we have this incredible group of both evolved capitalists and enlightened philanthropists that come together on a quarterly basis, and we talk about the impact that we've created, both financially, environmentally, and socially. Metrics. So far, what have you done? What have you accomplished with $3 billion of capital to invest? We have built to date and opened 96 public charter schools across the country in some of the most underserved, economically challenged communities. 96, call it 100, just to kind of round things up. How many kids graduate per year? Well, there's 50,000 kids in our schools that are students students at any given point in time. At any point in time. So every four years, one quarter of them are graduating. You're manufacturing 12,500 plus the impact that we have graduates in neighborhoods that wouldn't have graduated is so scalable, is so durable, is so sustainable, and so ground moving. It's a wonderful, it epitomizes the opportunities that we can do. We have generated incredibly strong market driven returns such that after our first fund, we raised a second fund. The first fund was $210 million. We did 64 schools for 34,000 seats. The second fund was $315 million. We've already built an additional 40 schools. We'll build an additional 30 on top of that between fund one and fund two. At the end of the day, we will have built 80,000 school seats, which would probably make us the 25th largest school district in the country in under seven years. Do you hold on to the schools? We do not. So we have a very innovative business model where we are a turnkey solution for great charter school operators. Notwithstanding, I recognize in my career that the only person that's created wealth in the landlord-tenant relationship is the landlord. And what we want to do is we want to empower these not-for-profits to have durable, sustainable enterprise values. So our business model is very clear. We partner with amazing, proven charter school operators that have a track record of both academic and financial performance. We build them amazing state-of-the-art environmentally and learning friendly, but most importantly, affordable 
schools, facilities for their operations. But once that school has four or five years of both academic and financial performance, we allow them to purchase the school from us by accessing cheaper cost of capital. All the schools are not-for-profit, 501c3s. All the schools have access to municipal bonds. So why pay me a market rate return when you can borrow money at a municipal rate of return? So we actually have a built-in exit strategy into our business model, which ensures that we have an alignment. It's easy to be an investor. Hit send on your wire instructions, write a check. Great investors are defined by those that have identifiable exits. So one point to that is, of course, to ensure the schools are sustainable and economically sound. The other is to rotate the capital, I suppose, right? Yes. To reinvest. Of course. Are your funds closed-end funds? You return the capital to the investors, or are they open-end funds where you can allow you are allowed to? Great question. So to- our funds are, I would describe them as your traditional private equity real estate fund. They are four-year commitment periods followed by five-year harvesting periods. We do have the right to reinvest capital in the first four years, yeah. but we primarily don't because the schools really don't have the option to buy the facilities until year four or five. Yeah. So what we find ourselves doing is building schools, returning the capital investors. What we're finding is that all of our investors come back for the next fund and the next fund. So practically it's an open-end vehicle even though there are a series of closed. As long as we're delivering returns, it's open-ended. As I tell people and I tell investors and I tell those who are benefiting from our investments so that suffer the injustices, we have to make money because if we don't make money, we can't raise more money. If we can't raise more money, we can't make more change. So we've done, again, close to 100 schools. We are in the workforce housing business as well. It is one of the most daunting challenges we face as a society. We've got 43 million renter households in America. One out of two are rent burdened, spending a third of their income on rent. One out of four, nearly 12 million families are severely rent burdened, spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent at the expense of food security, health security, and retirement security. Candidly, Gotti, at the expense of hope. Okay, And when we look at the landscape in America, it's become very divisive. And the divisiveness, I think, is pointed in the wrong direction, whereas most people are trying to demonize wealth, that the millionaires and the billionaires are the cause of the divisiveness, they're the cause of the suffering. And while disparity of wealth is a problem in this country, and it's more extreme than ever, I don't think that's the root of our problems. I think what we're suffering from today is the disparity of hope. I don't think that poor people, I don't think that the 99% hates the 1%. They want to become the 1%. But the reality is, is when the 99% is being foreclosed out of upward mobility, where the American dream is no longer feasible because you are living in survival mode, you're spending 60% of your income on rent, you're living paycheck to paycheck, your kids are relegated to failing school districts, there is no upward mobility. Your outcomes, both health, financial, societal, and economic, are determined by where you're born. That leads to the violence and frustrations in political circuses that we see today. So how do you help combat that? We have to invest in hope recognizing that the only way to do it is by making and creating innovative business-driven solutions to tackle these issues of education, housing, and health care. Let's talk about housing. So housing. Again, you have 12 million families living rent burden, spending over 60% of their income on rent. It is a big issue. It's growing. Estimates are that there'll be an additional 4 million workforce housing Workforce rental families generated in the next 10 years, primarily people of color and immigrants. So we know there's a huge demand today. It's growing. And we also know that there's no new supply. Now, I'm not talking about low-income housing, people that are earning below 50% of the AMI. These people, this housing is addressed by LIHTC credits, philanthropy, Section 8 housing, so forth, so on. That's not your space. Our space is for the essential service providers in this country. 
the teachers, the policemen, the firemen, the allied healthcare workers, the municipal workers, my employees, your employees, who make too much money to qualify for subsidized housing, but not enough money for home ownership or rental. We need to build new housing to accommodate and meet these because the reality is, is everybody suffers. Families, the environment, productivity, when we don't have workforce housing, affordable housing in close proximity to jobs, healthcare, amenities, and educational. So we understand the problem. What is the solution? So the obvious solution would be let's build new. Yeah. Problem is you can't. Because based on the parameters of what it costs to build new product in any major metropolitan area, you can't do it. You can't do it because today, given where rents are, where wages are, the economics are such that if you only charge 35% of AMI and build new in Los Angeles, your market rate return will be between 1% and 2%. It's not scalable. So you can't build new. So we looked at it from a very different approach is if we can't build new and haven't figured it out yet, and we will figure it out, there'll be partnerships with public-private partnerships and we'll change legislation and zoning laws so that we can reduce the cost of construction. But until that time, our focus was on triage. What was criminal to us and disheartening was that the existing stock of workforce housing is actually shrinking. And it's shrinking because every time B and C quality workforce housing is being put on the market and sold, it's being bought by your more traditional opportunistic investor who's doing one of two things. It's a business strategy that buys it and scrapes it and builds new high-end condos or high-end luxury rentals and regentrifies the community. Or the other approach would be the opportunistic or value-add investor who buys it and improves it puts in new bathrooms and kitchens and Caesar stone cabinets and sub-zero refrigerators and Tata self-flushing toilets. And the way to get a return on their capital is by what? Increasing rents on the very tenancy who see no wage inflation. So we realized that what we needed to do was to create a business model that would buy and preserve. Buy and preserve without increasing rents, but at the same time, by increasing profitability. And having been in the urban markets for 20 plus years, I recognize that the biggest cost of owning and operating workforce housing is turnover. Nobody works two jobs a day, comes home to a suboptimal apartment in a suboptimal community and says, God, I love living here. So therefore, it's a very transient community with, in fact, 100% turnover every 24 months. So your average lease duration is 24 months. And what we realized is that if we could change the relationship between landlord and tenant, if we could create a pride and rentership, people would stay longer. If they stayed longer, we would drive down turnover and drive up profitability. So our business model is very simple. We buy a property, we set aside a percentage of our units, and we subsidize housing for essential service providers. We subsidize housing for teachers and policemen and allied healthcare workers. And by the way, we're the only private equity, real estate funded multifamily that's also in the healthcare business and in the education business. So we have an informational competitive advantage which helps us identify the risks associated with recruiting. Do you select locations for apartments that are close to a charter school that you're inspiring or funding? Great question. Our mission is to take a holistic approach to writing the listing ship of social injustice, which means we've got to enrich a community with educational opportunities, healthcare opportunities, and housing. So, so is yes. that a criteria? You only do projects where you can bring all three to one place? No, because by way of example, we have not been able to implement our housing business model here in LA. We've not been able to buy naturally occurring workforce housing because there is none. But we are building healthcare clinics and we are building schools. Gotcha. So let's go back to housing. So in housing, what we do is we set aside a certain subset of units and we go out and we recruit Folks like law enforcement agents or recruit. folks like teachers. You don't wait for them to apply. You we go find recruit. Them. So we have a secretary of education 
who used to be a former classroom teacher and then who worked for the Kip Foundation, which is a charter school operation. Yeah. She goes out and she actively recruits teachers from the community. We provide subsidized housing and each of our properties, we have enrichment centers where we set up tutoring and mentoring lounges. So every day after school, when our children come home, to our community, they will find one of our teachers staffing a mentoring lounge, providing both cognitive and non-cognitive programming. So if you live in our property, you're probably paying 30 or 35% of your income, but you could never supplement or augment education by hiring a tutor. You get it for free. Number two, we have a Secretary of Defense. We have a former U.S. Marine, DEA officer turned Anaheim Police Department detective who now is our Secretary of Defense. That person goes out and recruits law enforcement agents to live in our property. We subsidize housing for law enforcement agents and their families, and in return for the free housing, they have a four-pronged repayment to us. Number one is if you have a squad car, park your squad car out front. Because when a drug dealer is walking down the street, are they more likely to sell drugs in the apartment building that has a squad car parked out front or not? It's obvious. Number two, you have to live in the property. Make your presence known. Number three, organize and oversee a community watch program. Mm. Critical. And number four, live there as long as you can. And what we've seen by this is we have hired rent and private security firms forever. And what we've learned by operating these communities for the last 20 years is that when there is a violent crime committed, when there is a gunshot that is fired on a property, the $15 or $20 an hour private security officers run away from the noise. But local law enforcement agents that live in the community run to it. it. So in fact, what we've proven over the last four years in our portfolio is violent crimes have fallen by 44% in our properties. So the third area would be healthcare. Our families, many are underinsured or uninsured. We provide subsidized housing for healthcare providers, nurse practitioners, allied healthcare workers, and we host and hold healthcare fairs when we can, cooking classes. We partner with local not-for-profits and oftentimes we'll put in virtual kiosks into our properties so that you can have face-to-face time with a primary care physician without ever having to go to a clinic. So again, if you're living in our property, you're spending 30% of your income on rent. But you could never augment your lifestyle with the three most critical issues. So you, you mentioned want. you're spending 30, 35% of your income on rent. Do you do means testing and do you adjust the rent you charge people based upon their income? Or are your rents your rents and it happens to work out the 30 So 30. we will only buy properties that meet that criteria. Okay. We are buying properties where we're looking at the average median income. Yeah. We're then superimposing on the rent. And we're making sure that our families are not spending more than 30 or 35%. Yeah. We then are committed to maintaining that rent. Now, there can be some rent creep. If there <clears throat> is inflation in wages, then we have the ability to raise rents, but we're pretty committed to not raising rents. Mm-hmm. What we've been able to do over the last five years is we have built a portfolio of nearly 10,000 units. We're serving nearly 16,000 residents of which over 3,000 are kids. We have delivered over 60,000 hours of community programming, mentoring, tutoring, health fairs, whatever it might be. And in return, what we have seen is a dramatic change in the pride of rentership. In fact, we've driven pride in rentership from below 30% tenant satisfaction when we buy a property. Today, our portfolio sits at 94% tenant satisfaction. So for our philanthropists, we've met that social impact. People are thrilled. Okay, now let's talk about the capital metrics. What have we done with regards to return on capital? 
Well, by driving tenant satisfaction from below 30 to greater than 90, what we've been able to do is a number of things. First and foremost, we have driven lease duration by over 24% and increases every month as people stay longer. So on average, when we bought a property, the average lease duration was 2.2 years. We're now at three years. People are staying longer. As a result, we have driven down economic loss by over 18%. Turnover, vacancy, bad debt. We have reduced our deferred maintenance costs because when people have pride in rentership, they treat the property better, and we have driven down crimes and incidences on our properties by over 44%. We have created a sense of community, and what happens is when a community that has been neglected of investment for the last 40 or 50 years, when they wake up to one day and see that you have an investor in the community that believes in you, you begin to believe in yourself and you hold yourself accountable for your own behavior, and that's called the reinforcing mechanism of social impact investing. Good for you. It'll be easy to miss how important this is. So I want to just kind of pause for a second and thank you for that kind of impact and that kind of investing. And the outcomes are fantastic. So let's talk about healthcare. That's your third vertical. Yeah. So I'm embarrassed to say that this country last year spent $3.6 trillion on healthcare, nearly 20% of our GDP. And yet, in spite of that, our healthcare outcomes from the bottom quartile of industrialized nations. And simple metrics like life expectancy, which has now dropped for the fifth consecutive year, and infant mortality rates, which have risen. And in communities of color and immigrants, the numbers are even worse. So how is it possible? What is the problem? Now, we will debate for year ad nauseum is what is the underlying root of the problem in healthcare. But I think most people can agree that the primary challenge in healthcare is a flawed reimbursement methodology. We have a healthcare system where healthcare providers are paid on volume. A doctor doesn't get paid unless they see you doctor doesn't get paid unless they perform a procedure or prescribe medicine. So there's almost a perverse incentive built into the healthcare system to treat sickness rather than prevent it. Now, under the auspices or under the leadership of CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they realized a decade ago that this flawed system is not sustainable, particularly when 85% of healthcare dollars are spent treating chronic issues of the elderly. And when we have a growing population of today, there's 50 million Americans over the age of 65. It will grow to 72 million Mm -hmm. in the next 10 years. Not sustainable. So under the leadership of CMS, they've begun to realize that what we need to do is shift the responsibility of outcomes, not on the insurance companies, but away from the insurance companies and onto those actually delivering services. So have doctors have healthcare providers held accountable. So in other words, rather than paying on volume, you're going to get paid on value and accountability. So therefore what's happening is we're shifting the payment and reimbursement model away from you get paid regardless of the outcome, where you will get paid more for better outcomes and you'll get paid for bad outcomes, which means now we have to retool our healthcare infrastructure system away from a rescue system, which is hospitals, into a community-facing preventative care system that will require a retooling of healthcare infrastructure, and that's the purpose of our healthcare fund. We're building state-of-the-art preventative healthcare clinics for community-serving centers that tackle the injustices of the disparity of access to affordable preventative healthcare in underserved communities in the same communities where we're building schools and buying housing. And in the first year of our fund, we have built 15 preventative 
healthcare clinics in the same communities where we're building housing or buying housing and building schools, delivering primary care services for 44,000 low-income patients. Fascinating. Paid for by who? Paid for. The service. Typically by Medicare and or Medicaid. Gotcha. So you build the physical plant and deliver the healthcare delivery So system? what we do is we, like our school fund, we build amazing infrastructure for amazing proven providers of clinically proven outcome based. Now, many of these are Medicare providers, many of them are Medicaid providers, and many of them candidly are private pay as well. I think everybody in the healthcare system recognizes that preventative treatment, preventative care is the only way we will address the issue of a failing healthcare system. If this works the way you hope it does, what happens to that segment of your business over the next three, five years? I think it will explode. If it works the way it does, someone asked me, I was the keynote speaker at the Freddie Mac conference, housing conference about two years ago, and I laid out the business model for what we're doing. And someone asked me why I would be so willing to share the secret sauce. Why was I so honest and willing to be transparent? Wasn't I afraid of competition? Responded, I'm not afraid of competition. I'm afraid that there's not competition. In five years, I've addressed the needs of 100,000 people that suffer from the injustices of social determination. There are tens and tens of millions of people. I need more people to recognize that the only way that we will solve our problems is by using business as a force for good, and particularly real estate, which is where people live, people work, where jobs sleep at night, where we educate people, where we solve chronic issues. So what's the secret sauce for making that healthcare delivery thing work? It clearly is a physical plant, there's an operator, and there's an economic model. You got the economic model done. Picking locations and finding the delivery system. So locations are not tough to find. Just like you would do demographic searches for income levels, you can also do searches on what we call HIPSA communities. And HIPSA community is a healthcare professional shortage area, federally designated area. So we look for those HIPSA communities where there's a huge mismatch of preventative care physicians and patients. So what we then do is we then seek out, or oftentimes a great value or outcome-based healthcare provider has sought us out, saying that they would like to expand into these communities, but their impediment to growth is capital for facilities. There's awareness on the provider side. This is an opportunity, and and you are a facilitator of that. Correct. Good for you. So this is where you are today. Great journey, great story, terrific outcomes. What does the next leg of the race look like? Just getting started. My job is to grow, A, this business, but B, grow the competitive set through awareness, through speaking on a podcast like you, and I'm grateful you've given me the platform, to speak in front of universities, to speak at organizations like PRIA, where we have to educate institutional capital that doing good and doing well are not exclusive, and the fact is, if done correctly, they can drive great diversification and alpha for your portfolio. What would make your business grow even faster and make even more impact? What would be the rate limiters today for the next five years? Permanent capital sources. We spend in the private equity real estate market an extraordinary amount of time going back to the well. What we will likely do in the next five years is convert our business model from private equity funds to a permanent capital source. May that be a sovereign wealth fund, it could be a public company, it could be a private REIT, whatever it would be, that would enable us to focus our energies on building the business rather than funding the business. No shortage of opportunities. It's really more about raising the capital and having it ready to move. I'm disheartened to tell you that there are no shortage of opportunities. If listeners wanted to get involved, an investor or a developer, they wanted to either help or be helped by this, what's the best way for them to engage with you? 
I'm going to sound like a politician now. Go to <laughs> www.turnerimpact.com. We very clearly lay out our business model for everyone to learn from. The one thing they can do is copy and paste. But if they wanted to engage with you, Um, partner with, give you money or give you projects or ask you to fund their projects, how does that work? So in this portion or chapter of my life, I am not an allocator of capital. Where when I was running the real estate activities at Canyon, what we would do is we would raise money and then find great local partners. We don't do that. We are a fully vertically integrated development company. So I'm happy to share our ideas. We're working with many local multifamily owners, showing them how we've built out our infrastructure program, how our property management company is structured. We're always open and welcome investors. Unfortunately, because of the structure of our funds, we're only open to accredited investors, institutional investors. Once we do eventually exit with a public alternative, we'll be able to democratize the opportunity for retail investors to invest in B corporations or corporations that have built into their DNA a dual purpose. Good. I'm sure there are lots of capital raising options and nobody knows the capital markets better than you. So I am sure you'll find a solution. But it's interesting in the category of helping others figure out how to do it. If you are not going to allocate them capital, if you're contemplating setting up like a consulting operation where you have experts available to others, whether for a fee or not, but to help them kind of replicate the turn our impact business model? We haven't yet. It doesn't mean that it's outside of our capability, but right now we are working 28-hour days to tackle things that candidly seem insurmountable. So maybe somebody on the audience will say, you know what, I'd like to do that and join Bobby and do the consulting and help others. So it's an opportunity. It is an opportunity. Again, the opportunities are endless. So all of us are not flawless. Most of us have made mistakes. Some of us do get to do over. If you had a thing to do over, one thing you could pick, what would you want to have? If you had a do over on something, what would you want to redo? I wish I'd had the courage to do this sooner. It's very difficult when you're the titan of an industry, when you're a partner in one of the world's leading hedge funds to give up the power and the prestige that comes with that position. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I'd done one thing differently, I have no regrets. And I look back to my days at Canyon with great fondness and great appreciation for the partnership I had there and how they empowered me to pursue a career and build out this business. I just wish on a personal level, I'd had more courage to have uh, focused all of my attention sooner. That's a beautiful thought. You feel like you could have done even more if you started even earlier. Yeah. Well done. Good for you. So your daughter said, go live your vision. What do you hope she says about you now? Well, I know what she says about me now because I have given her the courage. No, no, no. We don't want to know that. (laughs) The one thing that my wife and I hope for our children is that they have a career where their impact or their accomplishments are aligned with their values. And I think both of my kids are doing a great job. My son plans to go out and be a trauma surgeon. My daughter is very, very interested in using data and marketing to impact investing. So we feel very blessed that we've got two kids that are healthy, but they're also wise. Intelligence is only one metric of success. I always tell people, what are the three? I think there's three ingredients. Number one is you have to have some degree of intelligence. Number two, you have to have some degree of wisdom. Number three, in which I never forget, you have to have some degree of luck for success. There are millions and millions of people in this world who are as smart as I am, who are working as hard, if not harder, who never, ever would have had the opportunity that I've had. And I feel very blessed and fortunate, but recognize the role that luck has played, and therefore I feel an obligation to pay the good luck forward. I think the fourth thing that's essential to success 
is what I call AQ, which is adaptability. Because the reality is, is shit happens. No matter what you thought your destiny was going to be, it's not going to be. And when you're so focused on the destiny, what passes you by is life and the opportunities that life will give you. So roll with the punches, be adaptable, be wise, be open, listen with your eyes, listen with your ears. But most importantly, pursue a career where those values that you hold so dearly as a human being are aligned with your accomplishments. Well, with your attempt and success in helping people be healthier, have an opportunity through education, and have a roof over the head in a supportive environment, hopefully you'll also unlock the luck factor for them and help them have a better life. Bobby, thank you for taking the time to join us. You are doing great things. You're changing the world, and I admire you for that. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Scotty. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCo. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.